we were talking about something that I just honestly don't understand. So maybe y'all can follow me for just a second and help me out because I believe you can understand this, okay? If the game is on the line, okay, the game is on the line. It's the most important situation in the game, and at this point it can go either way. Do you want your best relief pitcher in the game, if you got a relief pitcher, or not your best relief pitcher in the game? Which one? Best or not best? How many say best relief pitcher in the game? You don't even have to know anything about baseball. How many of you say, yeah, game's on the line, nah, just throw anybody in there, who cares, right? No. You want your best pitcher in the game when the game's on the line, right? I sit and I watch games and I yell at the television because why doesn't anybody understand this? doesn't make any sense. You all just understood it, right? You could manage better than some of the guys that are managing in Major League Baseball right now because you understand when the game is on the line, put your best pitcher in there when you need to get outs. The game of baseball is pretty simple, right? On offense, you want to avoid making outs. On defense, you want to get outs. If you're the manager, you put in the pitcher that gives you the best chance to get the other team out when it matters most. The Cubs right now are moving on because the Washington Nationals manager failed to understand that concept that you just got completely put your best pitcher in the game when it matters most. I yell and scream at the television. I wonder, why doesn't anybody understand this? I get a glimpse a little bit, I think, of what Job's character in our Sunday morning story as we go on. Job kind of experienced a little bit when his friends kept coming to him over and over with these so-called solutions to his problems. And he just continues to shake his head and to yell and scream at the proverbial television and say, why doesn't anybody understand? You guys are all wrong. It doesn't make any sense. And so that's where we'll be looking this morning at that kind of question. What do you, what do, you do? I mean, how do you handle it? When nobody really seems to understand what you're going through and your situation. And it doesn't make any sense as to why things are happening. And their answers to your problem only simply make it worse. Our series that we're in, this is number 10 of 15, so we're, we're getting closer. We'll be done just before Thanksgiving with this series called When Life Doesn't Make Sense. And the idea has been to look at what do you do when, when bad things happen to you and you didn't really do anything to quote-unquote deserve it. It just happened. Some sort of tragedy, some kind of experience, whatever it may have been that has overtaken you. Uh, what do I do when I don't know what to do? What do I do when I live right and I'm almost seemingly punished for it? What do, what do I do then? That's kind of the idea. And so we've been looking at the, at the character of Job in the book of Job. So you've got your Bible. I want you to turn there with me. The book of Job. I've told you each week, if, you, if you're not familiar with where the book of Job is in the Bible, first of all, it's over in the Old Testament, so it's going to be toward the left-hand side of your Bible. But if you open toward the middle, if you brought a Bible, and I hope you do, I hope you've got a copy of God's Word, if you brought a Bible, uh, then kind of turn to the middle if you don't know where it is, and, and you'll probably be somewhere around the book of Psalms or maybe Proverbs. Turn back to the left just a little bit. Job is the book that is right before Psalms. And we're going to start this morning in chapter 18. So, 
Job has 42 chapters. We're in chapter 18. We only have five more sermons after this to get through. So you can see we're really going to pick up some some steam when it comes to how much ground we're going to cover. But this morning, we're going to look at the second of a series of conversations that Job has, or really just lectures that he gets from his friends. We started this last week, this second round. A guy named Eliphaz last week came to Job, one of his friends. Bildad is the guy today, another of his friends that comes to him and says, here, Job, here, I've got the solution to all your problems. I know what you need to do. Uh, where we are in the story as we, as we look at these different speeches, if you're not familiar with the book of Job or maybe you're just joining us, what, what happened to Job at the very beginning of, this, of his story is that he is held up by God to be this incredible, incredible believer. Job is said in God's words that he is a, a, a man of righteousness. He is blameless. He shuns evil. It means he's repentant. He turns away from sin. Uh, and, and he fears God. That means he worships God alone. Job is, is a, I mean, he is solid. If he were attending our church today, he'd be the kind of guy that you look up to spiritually. He's the kind of person that you'd want to be around. He just, he oozes God everywhere that he goes. And that was Job. And God said those things about Job. Satan in the story approaches God and says, well, yeah, there's good reason why he follows you so devoutly. And that's because you've made his life very, very easy. You've given him everything. And Satan says to God, if you take all that stuff away, I guarantee you that he would not worship you. And the issue is not just a testing of Job. The issue is, is there anything about God that is worth worshiping if not for all the stuff that God gives us? What if you found yourself removed from seemingly every sign of God's blessing that you've ever enjoyed? Would you still worship God? That's the question of the book of Job. The book of Job is not about look at what God did to Job or look at what Satan was able to get God to do. That's, that's really not what it's about. It's about is there stuff about God that, is, that who he is is worth worshiping even if we don't get what he gives. And so the story goes on to show us that Job has everything. Satan attacks Job and everything is removed. He loses all of his stuff. He was the richest man around and loses it all. And only that, but he had 10 children and in one storm, in one tornado, it seems, all of them were killed instantly. And then only that, to make matters worse, Job gets a disease, some sort of skin disease. And back during those times, of course, there was no cure for those types of things. And he becomes an outcast and he winds up sitting on the garbage dump there in his town, outside his town, and, and he's just by himself. His friends show up and they sit with him for about seven days and they don't say a word. And then they start to try to solve his problems. And in a series of lectures they give him, they tell him, Job, here's the deal. We know the answer and so on and so forth. And we're picking it up today in Job chapter 18, this second speech by a guy named Bildad, one of his friends. Look what it says. Verse two, how long will you, uh, how long rather until you stop talking? Show some sense and then we can talk. Why are we regarded, talking about their friends, why are we regarded as cattle, as, as stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in anger, should the earth be abandoned on your account or a rock be removed from its place? Yes, the light of the wicked is extinguished. The flame of his fire does not glow. The light in his tent grows dark and the lamp beside him is put out. His powerful stride is shortened and his own schemes trip him up. For his feet lead him into a net, and he strays into its mesh. A trap catches him by the heel. A noose seizes him. 
A rope lies hidden for him on the ground, and a snare waits for him along the path. Terrors frighten him on every side and harass him at every step. His strength is depleted. Disaster lies ready for him to stumble. Parts of his skin are eaten away. Death's firstborn consumes his limbs. He is ripped from the security of his tent and marched away to the king of terrors. Nothing he owned remains in his tent. Burning sulfur is scattered over his home. His roots below dry up, and his branches above wither away. All memory of him perishes from the earth. He has no name abroad. He is driven from light to darkness and chased from the inhabited world. He has no children or descendants among his people, no survivor where he used to live. Those in the west are appalled by his fate, while those in the east tremble in horror. Indeed, such is the dwelling of the wicked, and this is the place of the one who does not know God. This is supposedly from a friend to a man who's experienced tremendous tragedy and doesn't understand why. And as we look at this, you'll get the idea of what Bildad is really saying. When he talks to Job, he just expresses again that Job's friends really don't understand what he's going through. And to kind of summarize their lack of understanding, we'll put it in these terms today. The first thing that they try to tell him is that two plus two equals four, Job. Put it together, man. Two plus two, and and it always equals four, they say. Always, always. Everybody knows. Look at verse four, chapter 18. You who tear yourself in anger... Should the earth be abandoned on your account? Or rock be moved from its place? That may sound weird at first. It's poetry. What he's saying is, okay, so should we throw out everything that we know to be true about the world? Just because of you? Are you you, like your exception to the rule? I mean, these things have happened to you, and so now the, the things that we know about God, the things we know about how the world works, those don't apply to you now because apparently, Job, you are an exception. He's telling him, Job, look, man, two plus two always, always, always equals four. Look at verse five. He goes on to talk about it. He said, the light of the wicked is extinguished. Here's all that happens. Look at it. Their flame doesn't, grow, doesn't glow anymore. Verses seven through 10, it talks about they're tripped up by their own schemes. They, they fall into their own traps. I mean, Job, this is what wicked people have happened to them. Bad things, Job, happen to wicked people. Verse 11 says there's terror everywhere. They're just frightened all the time scared to death. And then verses 12 through 20 list, here's what they don't have. They don't have any strength. They don't have any health. They don't have any security. They have no possessions. Uh, They have no remembrance. They have no descendants. They have no friends. Job, that's what happens to people who are wicked. Two plus two equals four. That's just the way it is. That's what his friend is telling him. So Job, if you're experiencing those things, if that's what you're dealing with, all these things that happen to wicked people, um, put yourself there in the equation. Bad things happen to bad people. So, Job, I mean, I don't really want to say it exactly, but, man, if the shoe fits, put that thing on. What's his friend telling him? He's wicked. Job, you, I mean, we all know this. They have all lived, all these people back then, 
had lived by a misunderstanding of what we would call the retribution principle, retribution theology. I've told you this every single week, and if you remember nothing about this series, you will remember the idea that retribution theology is incomplete at best and really, really wrong at worst. Retribution theology tells us that good things will happen to good people and bad things will happen to bad people. And if I have done something good, I will get good. And if I have done something bad, I will get bad. And if I'm getting good things, then it's because I did something good. And if I'm getting bad things, it's because I did something bad. It's almost, in some senses, the idea of karma. Well, I'm just kind of paying for whatever I've done right or wrong. I get rewards or I get punished, but that's just the way things go. That's sort of what they believed. Underlying that is the idea that God is very distant and he's just sort of set the world up to work in some way and he's off, you know, in a retirement village playing shuffleboard or something down in the villages toward Orlando. I don't know. That's where he's at. God is hanging out on the beach somewhere and that's what he's doing. He's just set the world up. That's the way it's always going to work. Two plus two, Job, always equals four. So if you are experiencing these bad things, it must be because you are a wicked, wicked person. They could not see that God would work in a different way from their understanding. After all, I mean, in their minds, God was that guy. Just set it up. This is the way it goes. So not only does two plus two always equal four, but they, they essentially they're saying to Job, you're a liar. I mean, you're a liar, Job. Because, I mean, it's obvious that you're experiencing all these things that wicked people experience. And yet you are claiming that you're not wicked. Look at verse 2, chapter 18. How long until you stop talking? Show some sense. Then we can talk. Quit being a fool. Quit lying to us. We all know that you've done something. We're just trying to get you to, to think about it. Job, find it. Figure it out. Let's, let's get you to admit what you already know to be true, and that is you in some way, based upon the way that you've lived, the decisions you've made, the sins you've committed, you've brought this on yourself. You ever thought that about somebody? They have something happen to them, whatever it may be, some sort of, some sort of disaster. Maybe, they just, maybe it seems that they can never get past it. Over and over and over, they're just knocked down. And they, they've experienced all kinds of really tough things. And you just think, man, what are they doing wrong? I mean, it, you know, at some point, doesn't something go their way? I mean, you know, maybe if they do this, if they'd stop doing these things. And, and that's what they're telling Job. Look, man, you're a liar, obviously, because you've done something. You just, maybe you don't know what it is yet, but there's no way that you can claim that you are not the cause of all this stuff. And so just admit it. Just figure out what you've done wrong, and maybe God will give you your stuff back. Maybe God will restore you. The longer you keep up this charade of saying that you've done nothing wrong and claiming that God has done something to you, then the longer it's just going to last. Ultimately, what he says to Job at the end of this chapter is, Job, you don't know God. What a great friend he is. Uh, Job, we all know how the world works. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Uh, Bad things are happening to you, so we know you're a liar. And ultimately, look at verse 21. Such is the dwelling of the wicked, and this is the place of the one who, what, does not know God. What's he saying to Job? You don't know God at all. You're going to hell. You don't know God. Well, great comfort from a friend. All of this is a sign that God doesn't like you at all, that you're his enemy. Now, Job looked at Bildad the way that I look at the television screen when the manager doesn't put the best picture in. 
you don't get it, man. What are you, what are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. You have no idea what you're talking about, Job essentially says. Look in chapter 19. Job answered, look at verse 2. How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Essentially, he's just saying, man, just stop. Just stop. You ever had that person? And you know they're coming around and they know your situation. And you've been through a lot. And they're going to solve it for you. Well, you got what you need this time. Hey, I was reading an article the other day. It made me think of you, and I'm just going to send it to you. And it's all the stuff that's wrong with you they don't want to say to your face. I mean, that's what it is, you know. And I mean, that's, hey, read this article, would you? It really kind of, I think, you know, it highlights my, my feelings and understanding. And all it does, you're just like, good grief, just stop. You got those people in your life? I got them in my life. Everybody's got them in their life. Just stop, please. Well, how long will you keep this up? How long, he says, will you torment me and crush me with your words? Verse 4, even if it is true that I have sinned, my mistake concerns only me. Leave me alone. What the world are you guys even doing here? Go away, he's telling them. Verse 5, if you really wanted to appear superior to me and would use my, my disgrace as evidence against me, then understand that it is God who has wronged me and caught me in his net. You don't get it, guys. I didn't do anything. This is something that God is doing that I don't understand, but it's not my fault. You don't get it. Then he says in verse 7, I cry out violence, but get no response. I call for help, but there's no justice. It's like he calls 911 and he gets a busy signal or nobody answers the phone. I mean, imagine being in some sort of emergency and you need help right now and you call and you call and you call and nobody picks up the phone. There's no dispatcher to send somebody to help you. There's nothing. That's what Job is experiencing. In verse 8, he begins to talk about all the things that he sees coming from the hand of God. And he says, he's blocked my way. And he goes on to say, he's veiled my path. He's stripped me of honor. He's ruined me. He's uprooted me. He's opposed me, attacked me, isolated me, humiliated me, weakened me, and persecuted me. Job says all those things is what God has done. Now let me give you a little bit of a side note real quick. Job did not fully understand everything that was going on. We cannot, because Job is imperfect and has imperfect knowledge, we cannot build our entire theology of how to handle difficult times based upon what Job says and does. He is a great example, but he is not a perfect example. And because he didn't know the conversation that went on in the heavenly realm about, here's what we're going to find out. Is there anything to God worth worshiping except what God gives? Job didn't know about that stuff. And so when he goes on and he talks about all this stuff that God has done, he says so with an incomplete understanding that later he'll come to a greater understanding. We'll talk more about that as we get to it. But just understand that, that God, even though it feels as if God is treating Job as an enemy, and that's what Job says, Job doesn't have complete understanding or full knowledge of what God is doing, and neither do we. We don't fully understand all that God is doing. Isaiah 55 talks about that, that God's ways are far above ours. But one thing he does know, and that is his friends do not get it at all. They do not understand. But Job says something toward the end of chapter 19 in verse 25. It gives him and gives us a little glimmer of hope in the middle of this. And the truth is that there is always hope, even in the darkest of times. And Job holds on to what he believes eventually will happen. He believes that it won't always be like this, that he will see some change. Look in verse 25. 
but I know my living Redeemer, and He will stand on the dust at last. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see Him myself. My eyes will look at Him, and not as a stranger. My heart longs within me. He says, my, uh, my Redeemer is alive. I know it's not always going to be this way. Now, he uses some terminology here that is an Old Testament word that talks about a person that the, the Jewish people would have known as a kinsman redeemer. Now, that's a real fancy Bible-ish kind of phrase, but the idea was back in ancient cultures and, and in Jewish culture, they would have someone who was close to them in relation, some family member, some their next of kin, if you will, who would do for them what they could not do for themselves. And so this idea, this is what Job mentions, this redeemer is that word. And what Job is saying is, I know there will be somebody who comes to my rescue. Somebody who truly knows me, somebody who truly understands, somebody who truly loves me will get me out of this situation. The idea of the kinsman redeemer was somebody to represent you. Somebody to carry on your legacy, somebody who would act on your behalf and uh, maybe help you if you're in trouble, if you're in danger, if you've got some problems, you have some needs. The, the Hebrew word literally means one who delivers, who rescues, who redeems a property or a person. Uh, think of the story, if you know the story of the book of Ruth at all. Uh, Ruth was a, was a widow at a relatively young age. And she had a next of kin down the line just a little bit, a man named Boaz, who comes into the story to rescue her out of that situation. Being a widow back in that culture was nearly death for, for women. They, they were not uh, given any kind of livelihood or anything like that. It, it was just totally different culture. So if a woman lost her husband back then, she needed somebody else to come in and help her in that situation. And that's the kind of thing that, that Job has in mind here. Somebody will come and help me. One day this will all change. Because somebody will come to my rescue. There's somebody out there who cares. Somebody who loves me. Somebody who's not going to leave me on my own. Somebody who understands. Now, I read a bunch of stuff this week. All kinds of different commentators. And the word here, Redeemer, in the translation that we're using this morning is capitalized. Anytime you see something like that capitalized in the Bible, do you know who it's referring to? It's referring to the deity, God. Or Jesus in some cases, if you will. It's referring to God. Obviously, the translators believe that this refers to Job thinking of God as his redeemer. I read a variety of opinions on that this week. I came to the conclusion that I can't come to a conclusion, okay? Uh, I don't know exactly if Job has in mind immediately that God himself will come in the form of Jesus Christ one day, centuries later, and redeem us out of that. I don't know if that's exactly what Job was thinking, or if it was exactly that Job knew that God himself would come to his rescue and so on. I don't know that. That doesn't mean the translation is bad or there's mistakes in the Bible. I just couldn't come to a conclusion based upon the variety of commentators that I read who study this stuff for a living. I couldn't come to that conclusion. Maybe Job had in mind that God himself, he's mentioned that before. But it seems as if in the context of what he's talking about, maybe I don't know if God's on my side or not, but I know somebody will be. What Job knew in part, that somebody would take care of him, we see God, yes, saying that's exactly what Job was alluding to, even if he didn't know it. One day, someday, there would be this redeemer who would come. And so whether Job knew those things exactly or not, whether he had a full theology of all that, doesn't make any difference. 
he points to what we now look back on. He was looking forward to the day when someone would take care of him, someone would understand, and God himself was the one who would come in the form of Jesus Christ to rescue those, to show up in our place to rescue those who are devastated by the effects of this broken world. The Redeemer would enter the picture. Job said one day he'll stand on the dust. Essentially where I sit in this garbage dump, he'll stand. That's what he looked forward to. The Redeemer would come, stand with Job, take Job before God, not as a stranger but as a friend, and defend him. The Redeemer would understand. Finally, somebody would understand. Now we know Job's words, of course, eventually find their greatest fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ, who is not a Savior who just sits off from a distance and speaks some words or casts a spell or makes us wonder, do we have any place with God? Jesus became one of us. You ever wonder, does God understand our situation? God lived in our situation. Jesus understands our suffering. This morning, you may be the person who is going through it. You may be ministering, trying to help the person who's going through it. Listen, what we need, we looked at this last week, what we need is not just great advice and psychological help. God can use those things. But we need Jesus. And I don't mean that as a cliche. You just need Jesus or your shirt. You know, people need Jesus or y'all need Jesus. Right? That's just kind of a sarcastic way to put it, right? That's not what I'm talking about. We need Jesus who fully understands. I want you to flip over to the New Testament. All the way over to the book of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. John chapter 16. We're going to look quickly this morning at at sort of the the emphasis that God places on what Job was saying, the, the fulfillment of that. Jesus entered our world. He took on a body like ours, and he truly understands our suffering. And there are a variety of reasons for that, the first of which is he lived it. He lived it. John chapter 16, verse 31 excuse me, uh, verse uh, 32. He says, look, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone. Do you know the hour that he's talking about? Anybody, not a trick question. What's he, what, what event is he talking about? His crucifixion, the cross, right? He says, the hour is coming, the hour has come, when all of you will be scattered, you're going to run away, and what? I will be alone. Jesus went through it alone. He suffered and died alone. He lived it. And in the process, he lived the ridicule and the embarrassment and the pain and the abandonment and the suffering. Maybe you think God doesn't understand what you're going through. Look to Jesus. If ever God said, I get it, I know what you're dealing with, I understand you, it is in Jesus because he lived it. There is nothing that we face, we'll see this in just a moment, nothing that we faced that Jesus himself did not experience and cannot understand. In his hour of suffering, Jesus proved that he understands our pain because he lived it. Not only that, but he validated it. You're going through a tough time. Jesus has lived it and he validated it. John chapter 16, verse 33. 
he says, look at the middle of the verse, you will have suffering in this world. Is what I'm going through normal? I mean, like, do these things really happen to people who follow Jesus? I mean, good grief. I can't seem to ever get past this. I mean, you know, why, why is this relationship not working? Why am I so depressed? Why did this person die? I mean, do these things happen to Christians? You can go to John 16, and you can say, yeah, Jesus validated the fact that we will have suffering in this world. What did he say? You will have suffering in this world. Pretty clear, right? You to wonder, does Jesus, I mean, is this like foreign to him? Is this surprising him? No. If you ever wonder, will I have suffering in this world? Go to John 16, 33 and just read it. You will have suffering in this world. Now, of course, he's talking primarily to his disciples there right, right then and, and helping them understand it because you follow me. But, but listen, we know just in general in a broken world, there's pain and there's suffering, especially for those people who follow Jesus. He promised this world will hate you. You will have suffering. So it shouldn't, shouldn't surprise us. Let's be honest. You ever been just like, well, I can't believe that happened. I can't believe that I'm living this way and those people don't like me. I mean, I'm the nicest person in the world. I didn't do anything to them. You know, I went out of my way to try to be so nice to this group of people and they, they, they claim that I'm hateful because I disagree with what they do. And we're shocked. You will have suffering in this world. Don't let it shock you anymore. Okay? No, no excuses now. If you're floored this week because somebody doesn't like you because you're a Christian or because somebody doesn't agree with your worldview, no shock anymore. <clears throat> in, actually, uh, if you look also in verse 2 of chapter 16, he speaks specifically to his disciples about what they'll experience. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, I mean, think about the disciples right now. They, they, they're ready to charge Jerusalem. Let's take it over. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's doing a service to God. What? That's the kind of suffering he was talking about. So he lived it. He validated it. Thirdly, he reversed it. Look at verse 33 again. I have told you these things about what's going to happen so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering. They'll try to kill you. They'll succeed at certain times. But in me you will have peace. Does any of that other stuff sound peaceful to you? Doesn't sound peaceful to me. I'd just soon not be attacked for my faith, to be honest with you. I just really prefer that not to happen. I would just assume because I'm a Christian and I'm a pastor that everything would go perfectly for me. I mean, just like I told you a few weeks ago, that the home in Sarasota for the wintertime and the home in Cooperstown, New York for the summer is already there and it's paid for and somebody just donates it. That would be perfect. It's Christmas coming up. I'll take either one of those. No problem. Okay? Problem. Just tell me where to sign. It's all good. Shake your hand. Say thanks. It's perfect. Give you a hug if you need it. Um, That's what I want. I want it all to go perfect. But none of that is peaceful. Jesus says, even in that, though, what? I'm going to reverse it. I'll give you peace in the middle of all that stuff. Verse 21, look at this. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into this world. What a great, what a great illustration. 
that the difficulty of childbirth and the pain is replaced with joy when that baby is brought to you. And Jesus says, that's what I'm doing with your suffering. Turning it around. Does that mean you're going to get out of it? Does that mean you can claim this and claim that? No, no, no. What you can claim is that God isn't done with you yet. That Jesus has reversed our suffering and one day he will make it different. And through that torture device known as the cross, it is Jesus who took our sin, the cause of our greatest suffering, our sin, and reversed it and made it something for our redemption. And then finally, he defeated it. John 16, 33 again. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. But be courageous. What does he say? I have conquered the world. On the cross, through the empty tomb, Jesus has defeated our suffering. And so tomorrow morning... That'll still be true. And so it's okay to get up and get going. Tomorrow morning when you go and you face all that same stuff, it's okay to get out of bed and it's okay to smile even when you don't feel like it. It's okay to believe it's all going to get better. It's okay to admit you're struggling too. It's okay just to put one foot down in front of the other in faith. Jesus is talking about what he was going to do to defeat it on the cross and we look back at what he has already done to defeat our suffering. And now we can say with Job that we see God as friends, not as strangers, because of what Jesus has done for us. It is by his grace through faith that we receive that relationship. I want to read to you just in closing a passage from the book of Hebrews. If you want to make note of the reference, or if you want to turn there, that's fine too. I just think it really sums up for us what Jesus has done and how he understands and I'm just going to close with this, and then we'll, we'll pray. Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 5 through 18 just in closing this morning. I'm not going to try to explain it all, just so you know. There's a few things there that you know, what in the world does that mean? Just get the overall picture, okay? Not another sermon here. Here's what the author says in verse 5. For he, talking about God, has not subjected angels to the world to come that we are talking about. But one has somewhere testified, what is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with honor and glory and subjected everything under his feet. For in, for in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. But we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death. For it was fitting in bringing many sons to glory that he, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Talking about Jesus calling, calling believers brothers. Saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, he also shared in these. So that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring, that's us. 
Therefore, he had to be like his brothers in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And listen to this. For since he, talking about Jesus, he himself was tested and has suffered, he is able to help those who are tested. Jesus understands. You may feel as if nobody gets it. And they just keep saying things to you that don't make any sense. And they keep doing things that don't make any sense. Doesn't anybody understand? And the answer emphatically in all of Scripture is yes. The one who matters most, he understands. He lived it. He validated it. He reversed it. He has defeated it. Would you come to Jesus this morning? No longer just looking for solutions that fix the outside circumstances, but who truly, the, the one who can truly change you from the inside out. A little prayer down at the bottom. Lord, I know you won't let me down. Is not putting God on the spot. It is simply counting on him as our redeemer. The one who will come to us in our time of need. The one who has lived our suffering. The one who has validated and said it's part of life. The one who has reversed it on the cross. And the one who has defeated it for all time. Lord, I'm, I know you won't let me down. Let that be your prayer of faith this week. Let's pray together. Whatever it is that you brought here this morning, it's weighing heavy on you. Just in the next couple of moments, I wonder if you'd simply pray, whisper a prayer. Lord, I know you won't let me down, so I'm giving this to you. Jesus, I trust you. I know you love me. I know you died for me. I know you'll see me through. Some of that stuff's really heavy and really painful. And so was that cross. And that's where Jesus went for you and for me. And so we can leave those things at his feet. He understands this morning, even if nobody else does. Praise God for a Savior who understands. Our Heavenly Father, we do indeed praise you that you understand. That you've not left us on our own no matter how alone we might feel. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have lived what we are living. Lord, help us not to be shocked when we endure suffering, but to turn to you, to see you reverse it in our lives and use it for something for your glory. And ultimately, Lord, we know that, that on the cross and through the empty tomb that you have defeated those things. They don't define us, nor will they control us for eternity. So, Lord, in the meantime, may we count on you to never let us down. We know that you're faithful and that you're good. We give you praise this morning. We turn our hearts towards you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.